If you will, stand as you are able for the reading of the gospel. This is the gospel of John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it is not possible to see God's kingdom. And Nicodemus asked, how is it possible for an adult to be born? It's impossible to enter the mother's womb for a second time and be born, isn't it? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, it is not possible to enter God's kingdom. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born anew. God's spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. It is the same with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said, how are these things possible? Jesus answered, you are a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? I assure you that we speak about what we know and testify about what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has gone up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the human one. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So today is Trinity Sunday. This is the Sunday after Pentecost, and every year we celebrate the Trinity Sunday, and we seek to understand what is the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is a theological truth, and I'm here to tell you we can never fully explain the Trinity because we are, in fact, limited and sinful humans who can never really understand the divine nature of God. In, for, in fact, while preparing for my sermon today, I was doing pretty good until I watched a YouTube video that basically pointed out that every analogy of the Trinity commits some form of heresy. And heresy is something I usually try and avoid in my business, so I'm going to try my best today to explain the mysterious nature of the Trinity without committing any major theological faux pas, if you will. So as we just read, the lectionary passage for today is of Jesus having a conversation with Nicodemus, trying to explain the nature of this new kingdom of God and Jesus' role in it. Nicodemus was a Jewish scholar and a Pharisee. He had many reasons to question Jesus. In the pre previous two chapters, Jesus had been doing miraculous signs and he had already disrupted the Passover feast being held in the temple. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus straight away to ask his questions. 
but he comes by night and he gets into this theological conversation with Jesus about the Holy Spirit, about the Son of God, and about God's plan for the whole world to be redeemed. Now Nicodemus was confused. He had come from a faith tradition where they are God's chosen people. The redemption of the world comes through sacrifices, keeping the law, and a covenant that stretches back to Nicodemus's ancestor, Abraham. Jesus completely flips what Nicodemus knows to be true on its head. Nicodemus has always believed and he has always understood God in this one way of being. But Jesus talks about the Spirit of God going where it wishes, the Son of God being lifted up like a snake in the desert, and ultimately that God doesn't want to condemn the world, but bring everyone to salvation and redemption and give them eternal life. Now, we don't know if Nicodemus is entirely convinced by this one conversation. But we do know that Nicodemus becomes a secret follower of Christ who comes out and reveals himself as a follower of Jesus after the crucifixion. When faced with the truth of God's grace, of God's love for the world, and God's plan to see that all the world be brought into this sacred covenant and become God's people, Nicodemus sees the light and is born again. It's something that he might never fully understand, but he finds a way to accept the mystery of God's perfect plan so that his whole life is transformed. And eventually, as I said, he reveals himself to be a disciple of Jesus and one who believes this new theological understanding of the world. Now you might be wondering, what does that have to do with Trinity Sunday? Trinity is a word that is never used in scripture. The Trinity is a theological concept that we as Christians have used to describe who God is. This scripture passage is one of the only places where Jesus talks about the three persons of the Trinity in one small part, which is why we use it for Trinity Sunday nearly every year of the lectionary. The theology of the Trinity is not something that we pull from a specific scripture passage, but this is the one that we get as close as we can. However, the Trinity is an essential part of who we are as Christians. We are monotheists who believe in the Godhead being made up of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity of Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer is a core essential belief that we must hold to as Christians within the church universal. We affirm our faith in the Trinity every time we say any of the creeds, any time we sing the doxology, and with every baptism when we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But do you understand what the Trinity is? Do you understand how it works? Or maybe do you understand what it's not? I can bet 
with good money, <laughs> that if you were to be asked about the Trinity and tried to explain it, you would also fall into the trap of one of those heresies that is very common. My goal today is to help us see what the Trinity is not, and that might reveal to us what the Trinity is, and most importantly, why does the Trinity matter for the church today? First, what is the Trinity not? Or in other words, common heretical analogies to avoid when talking about the Trinity. You can find a YouTube video with that if you need it. I should point out that when I say heretical, I mean that in the very literal sense, in that these are theologies and doctrines who have been condemned by the Christian church throughout the last thousand years, thousands of years. Within the first 400 years of Jesus' death, there was a lot of discernment done by Christian thinkers and philosophers and theologians to try and decide what was the doctrine that we would hold to as Christians, what will we hold to be true no matter what. There were many councils and committees and groups who spent time prayerfully discerning what it was that God was trying to say to us through the person of Jesus and through the scriptures and what we could hold on to as true no matter what. Now I will say, if you have ever used any of these analogies or theologies, you're in good company. There's plenty of Christians throughout the world who have used them to describe the Trinity including myself. How else can you describe the Trinity to a group of children in a children's sermon? So the first common heresy when talking about the Trinity is that of modalism. Modalism is this belief that the Trinity is three modes of God in the world that each have a unique expression but are of the same essence. So the prevailing analogy that's used for modalism is that of water which says that God is like water, ice, and vapor, and that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different revelations of God in different times and places or circumstances. So how many of you have heard that analogy? I won't ask you if you've used that analogy because I don't think we should admit to heresy in the church, but here we are. So that is considered heresy because it denies the substance that unites God in the Trinity. God exists in the Trinity in the full divine substance of God. The mystery of the Trinity is that the individuals are not different modes of God that take on depending on the time and the space, but that God is fully God in all ways in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you might think about it this way, that Jesus is fully God. He's not just a mode of God in that one time and place, but he is fully God forever and always. The second heresy that people are common to um, draw from is partialism. Partialism states that the Trinity has three distinct parts of one whole God. The analogy you might hear is that of a three-leaf clover, that each leaf is a different portion of God or part of God, but together they make the Godhead. This was the favorite analogy of St. Patrick when he shared the gospel with those in Ireland. And how many of you might have heard that analogy before, right? But this is deemed heretical 
because partialism divides the power of the Trinity into three parts and claims that God's full power is not seen unless all three persons of the Trinity are present. You can't have a three-leaf clover if only one of the leaves is present. It claims that the parts of the Trinity are not God unless they're united in a whole. This relegates the individual persons as less powerful or less divine without the other two. The mystery of the Trinity is that God's full power is found in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One way of thinking about this is that we have only fully experienced the Holy Spirit in our lives because none of us have physically seen Jesus or been with God the Father in heaven. But the Holy Spirit contains the full power of God in your life and in mine. The third heresy that is common is Arianism. And this is a little less common, but I think you'll get with me when we start explaining it. This uses an analogy like the sun to describe the Trinity. And this says that the sun is made of a star that admits light and heat. And this is like that this is like God the Father who sends Jesus and the Holy Spirit into the world. How many of you might have thought something along those lines? This theology has plenty of folks who still hold this doctrine as true, most notably our Jehovah's Witness or Unitarian brothers and sisters and neighbors. But this is heretical in the Catholic and Protestant church because it denies the co-eternity of the Trinity. God has existed in the fullness of the Trinity from the beginning of time. One does not predate the others, and God the Father is not the head with the Son and Spirit falling underneath God's supremacy. The mystery of the Trinity is that all three individuals have coexisted for all of eternity in equal and unified relationship of community. We can see this back in Genesis when God says, let us, create God, let us create man or woman in our image. The plural is used and we see that as support for the Trinity's coexistence from all of eternity. So I know what you might be thinking and this is where I was struggling after watching that YouTube video is now all of my analogies are thrown out. How am I supposed to explain the Trinity? Well, you're in luck because you don't have to use an analogy. You can use the articles of religion. Now, you might not have ever heard of the articles of religion, but this is one of the things that has come to pass after all those councils and discernment of various Christian leaders and theologians throughout all of history. The articles of religion were um, decided upon in the church. So as we divided the Christian church into multiple denominations, different articles of religion or different theologies have been held true in every single different denomination. And when Methodism became its own denomination, we adopted the articles of religion as one of our doctrinal standards, copying them nearly word for word from the Church of England so you can see the family tree of how Methodism becomes connected back to the Catholic Church. Now the Articles of Religion can be found online 
or in the Book of Discipline for the United Methodist Church. But the very first one is the only one I want to draw your attention to today. And if, it's, if you have a bulletin handy, I've had Linda print it in the bulletin so that you can read it, have it as reference, should you ever need to explain the Trinity without committing heresy. So the article here says, there is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body or parts, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So when you compare this definitive doctrine against all these heresies we've discussed, then you can see that modalism denies the coexistence of the substance of the Trinity. Partialism denies the coexistence of the power of the Trinity. And Arianism denies the coexistence of the eternity of the Trinity. But the main characteristic we want to draw from the theology of the Trinity is that of unity. Read it again. In unity of this Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. Unity of the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity is the reason that the Trinity matters for us as a church today. Because every time we encounter God, it is a reflection of what we are not. The unity that's found in essence of who the Trinity is is what the church has always lacked. From the earliest days of the church, there has been conflict and division. Truly, division and conflict are a part of who we are as humans, and it stands in great contrast to who God is as the Trinity. You see, the Trinity is made up of three individuals, but is completely united in a purpose and a mission from God alone. God's ultimate plan that the whole world receive salvation and eternal life through understanding God's grace and mercy found in Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, that the church be empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring about God's kingdom on earth. That's God's mission in the world, and it can never be accomplished without complete unity within the Trinity. The church today stands to gain so much if we can only be united in our beliefs and our actions. God has placed that potential within us from the very beginning. But we constantly have turned away from unity in favor of our own preferences, our own pride, or our own prejudices against one another. I saw a quote this week that said, Satan is not scared of the growth of the church, but is terrified by the unity of the church. For it is in the unity of the church where we can be used to God's greatest effort and effect. We can be the tools that God has, in, has created us to be, tools of the Trinity to transform the world around us. But division discord and disagreement 
can lead us to fall right into the power of Satan instead. How can we find that true unity that the Trinity models for us? How can we be united as a church that we can truly live out our calling by God to make new disciples and transform the world? What would be impossible for us if we were united in the work to bring about God's kingdom here in Macon as a church? Nothing would be impossible, for we would be showing the world what God is like, a united front where we're able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine on God's behalf. We can only do that when we are united in our belief in the one true God and listening to God's calling for our lives. We will never be united unless we are all unified behind God alone. One way of thinking of this is if you were to tune an orchestra. You must begin with perfect pitch, given by a tuning fork or a digital tuner these days. Because if you were to begin only with one other instrument and everyone tuned to that one, soon everyone would be out of tune. Of course, they would still be in unison, but not making very beautiful music. Because inherently, everyone would be out of tune. But when you begin with a tuning fork, the first instrument tunes to that perfect standard. Then the whole orchestra follows by tuning one instrument to another until they are all in unison, not just to one another, but to that perfect standard set by the tuning fork. And then that way, the orchestra plays in perfect harmony and plays and makes a beautiful symphony. In the same way, if we don't tune our lives to God alone, we may be united, but united behind the wrong thing, causing our whole church to be drawn away from what we have been called to be, God's people. So how will we know if we achieve that unity that we want so much? How will we know when we're united behind God alone so much that we are God's people? This only happens when we seek God alone through prayer and through worship. When we listen to God's voice calling us into deeper relationship with him that's guided by scripture. And most of all, we will know that we have achieved that unity and that unison when we have the fruit of the Spirit within our lives, individually and as a corporate body. For when we are united in God alone, our church and our lives will be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I know you have seen Christians who live that kind of faith. We have examples of that faith in our families, in our friends, within this very body of our church, and most of all within scripture itself. But we don't tune our hearts and our lives to their life, 
to the life of any other Christian person, no matter how worthy they may be. We unite behind God alone, behind the Trinity, that we may be a church united in perfect harmony with God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.